You're listening to the Smart Policy Podcast, a production of the University of Tennessee's Institute for Public Service. Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, CVS, Walgreens, Teva, Allergen, I could keep going. Drug manufacturers and distributors have rightly come under scrutiny in light of the opioid abatement settlements. As these companies start paying out hundreds of millions of dollars across the country in an effort to make up for the damage they cause by ignoring the warning signs of opioids, it is easy to sit back and blame the whole thing on corporate greed. And no doubt, corporate greed played a big role. But the pharmaceutical industry is a complex web that extends far out from just the drug makers and pharmacies. It involves doctors, providers, pharmacists, governmental agencies, insurance companies, law enforcement, and of course, the patients themselves. So what happened to cause such a huge and complex supply chain with built-in checks and balances to fail? Imagine a stack of Swiss cheese slices stacked on top of each other. As long as the holes don't line up, Nothing can pass through. When those, when those holes line up, watch out because you're going to have some failure. It's going to happen. My guest this month is Professor Ann Smith from UT College of Business. She specializes in organizational failure in the context of disasters and catastrophes. When an organization is formed, the values of the CEO, early actions are imprinted on a firm. As Professor Smith discusses in this episode, the opioid crisis unfolded not unlike the Challenger explosion or the Black Hawk helicopter incident in northern Iraq during the Persian Gulf War. Poor company leadership, market manipulation, regulatory failure, and other factors all happen to line up perfectly to create this disaster. In this episode, we dive into all these different parts of the supply chain, as well as discussing how policymakers and the private sector can learn from this colossal mistake and hopefully prevent another pharmaceutical catastrophe in the future. I'm Professor Ann Smith. I'm in the Haslam College of Business. I'm a strategy scholar, so I, the bottom line is we study why firms succeed or fail. And now, maybe it's a personal flaw, but I like to study why organizations fail. And so something I've been very interested in is uh, what are causes for um, like ca- catastrophes like Challenger, Columbia, friendly fire over Iraq, northern Iraq in 1994, Everest in 96. So I study these. Um, they make for really interesting conversations when you're teaching students about how organizations, um, how they're structured, how they operate their culture, how that can lead to failure. Okay, that's interesting. I, organizational failures, it, it's, uh, how is that different than, say, an economic failure, a market failure? Up to the level of analysis. Um, so when I, I mostly have looked at incidences, like what led to Challenger, how they didn't fix the problems in NASA, which led to the second to Columbia um, space shuttle disaster. So I mostly studied these disasters. Um, you know, even Gatlinburg 2016, the fire that roared through Gatlinburg. Um, mm. There is a there are frameworks out there to understand it. So that's one reason I've stumbled into the opioid interest in the opioid crisis is because when I 
I've read it and become immersed in it, I become more and more aware how it fits and lines up with the frameworks in which we use to understand why disasters unfold. So that's been my interest in this. I don't, I'm not a medical, I don't have a medical background. Um, I'm just interested in why organizations fail. Now, the opioid crisis was a, a level above that, was more industry level. So I don't study market failures like, you know, what the 2008 financial meltdown, that, right. that, that, although there was an organizational component, it's sort of beyond my, my wheelhouse. Um, I study more units of organizations, how they, how the ethical breaches mm. happen and, and how they unfold. And then, so the opioid crisis has broadened my interest to looking at how an industry or how industries, how an entire supply chain ended up exacerbating what we're dealing with today or were the primary causes of, let me just bottom line it, they were the primary causes of the crisis that we see today. So that's why when I'm, the more I'm reading about it, the more I'm understanding that how it fits with a lot of what we know about why, why we have disasters, why we have organization failures or events like Challenger, a space shuttle um, explosion and such. That's, I, I really think that's, an extremely fascinating way of looking at this because we talk about the business side of how this crisis started and is usually the narrative is corporate greed and I'm sure that played a role. Mm-hmm. But to look at the entire supply chain, every single factor here, how is it exactly that this came about? What failures did take place? Well, there are two frameworks out there to understand disasters or two ways to think about it, the way I think about why things unfold the way they do. And one comes from James Reason. He has talked about the holes of the Swiss cheese lineup. Mm. And in this case, they did. They lined up from the poppy fields in Tasmania all the way through to doctor's offices and every part of the supply chain. So if you think about what was going on with uh, Tasmanian, the new pop, the super poppies that were created, then we talk about the manufacturers. Manufacturers were you know, Purdue Pharma because they're the taproot, as Beth Macy says, she, they were the instigator of this, right. followed by other pharma company, pharmaceutical manufacturers as well, Malincrot, Teva, and then uh, Janssen, which was a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. Then we move to the next grouping, which are the distributors. When you think about the distributors, three of them control 90% of the opioid distribution in the United States. We knew that. The DEA knew it. A lot of people knew it. They were the bottleneck. And I I do believe that if one or two of them had said, no, we're not going to do this anymore, we're not going to flood these rural communities with pills, the, the crisis perhaps could have been Reduced. I don't know if it would have, I don't think it would have ever uh, abated, but I think it would have been reduced. So we moved through from poppy fields to manufacturers to this very much a bottleneck, these three major distributors, through to pharmacies, CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, grocery stores, Rite Aid, all of those. Yeah. Um, they're more fragmented industry. Um, and again, they had responsibilities. And then we have the doctors um, who initially, we, you know, I, I grew up, my generation, you know, touch narcotics. And a lot of the doctors had this viewpoint. Um, so we, we look across this, but of course they were they were changed in their mindset by the serious marketing and sales efforts that took place um, by the manufacturers. Uh, and then you have the patients. And the interesting thing about the patients is many of them um, had, you know, many of them would never have had narcotics for toothaches and a sprained ankle and such, but they were so ubiquitous that people had that tendency. I think that that was the final 
hole in the Swiss cheese. When those when those holes line up, watch out because you're going to have some failure. It's going to happen. But the other thing to think about is is and I think this is the way the world works, this is the way I look at organizations today, is through a complexity lens. Look at those initial conditions. What is happening there? And I think that's where Purdue Pharma, they, they lay the groundwork for, the, for the, the foundation, if you would, for the emergence of the opioid crisis. When I think about initiating conditions, you think about Purdue Pharma putting a lot of money um, and time and thought into how to widen the market for this product. Now, it's interesting to look at Purdue Pharma marketing and says what they did with OxyContin. Because if you go back in the history, and this is an empire of pain, but we have theories for this, and the theory is imprinting. When an organization is formed, the values of the CEO Early actions are imprinted on a firm. And when the imprinting takes place, it sort of gets into the corporate DNA. It's the way you act. I always tell students, if you're going to go interview with a company, go read the biography or autobiography of who founded the firm, and it will tell you why the company behaves in the way in which it does, mm-hmm. or a, lot, you know, a, a large portion of it. But in this case, when you think about Purdue Pharma, it's like the same playbook and elements of what they were doing back with uh, Arthur Sadler and the initial beginnings of this company before it was called Purdue Pharma, they were part of the creation of Thorazine to help people with psychiatric uh, mm. illnesses. But what they did is they broadened it, and then they created a more mass-marketed pharmaceutical product, which was Valium, uh, Mother's Little Helper. Right. And um, we know what happened with Valium. It ended up being... Um, brought in under narcotics control in 1965. Arthur Sadler was one of the initial people who had developed a huge marketing arm. Actually, he owned two marketing companies, as her, as, but in neither case was he very visible. He, under, he was one of the first to send sales representatives out to doctor's offices. That was novel um, back in the 50s. So he was really had this very, very entrepreneurial, hardworking, marketing-oriented, sometimes it was a little bit deceptive, um, co-opted the FDA. This Mm. is way back when. So you take that DNA, you move it forward in time to Richard Sackler. Mm. And Richard Sackler, um, they saw that MS Cotton, which was a morphine pill that was a time-release morphine pill, was coming off patent. And they had bought a company uh, named Purdue Frederick, but they made these very kind of unsexy products called, you know, for earwax and constipation. (laughs) So so they ended up using the the cotton system with oxycodone, creating oxycontin. And then they just took a, they took a leaf from the playbill previously as part of their DNA. And so the FDA played a role in this. And this has been highly documented. And everything I'm saying today, it's because I've read it and and it's all documented. But the FDA, Curtis Wright, uh, helped them to get a warning onto their black box label, um, their warning label for the drug that stated... And all the sales reps knew this, but they got this into the warning working with the FDA. And this warning was delayed absorption of OxyContin is believed to reduce the uh, abuse potential. Mm. That line was known by all the sales reps. So how do you convince doctors who are very nervous about 
prescribing narcotics. Um, how do you get them to change their mind? Well, you show them the FDA. You talk about there's only a 1% chance now the, of becoming addicted. The 1% chance was based on a letter like in the early 90s. Yeah, a letter to before. the editor to the, the, the New the England the Journal of Medicine. Jick and Porter. Yeah. Yes. And Again, that was a non-peer refereed, which if anybody's like an academic researcher, they'll know what we mean by that was a letter to the editor. So so that that combined with the FDA, combined with getting it into the black box warning or the warning uh, label, then using that to market, um, to market the product and convince doctors that, you know, it it wasn't addictive. And so they saw results too. So again, that that black box warning was something, I think, the initiating conditions. The third uh, part of the initiating conditions was this uh, focus and refocus on pain, pain as the fifth vital element. So Uh, for the, for the, average person here, I guess what you're saying is, is not only were the experts in their market already, they then got the regulatory authority of that market to condone their product uh, and, and describe it as safe. And the third was that they knew how to expand their market in mm-hmm. the first place into, yep. into untapped areas. Yeah. Yes. And I would say the FDA, I mean, it wasn't that they were safe or unsafe. It was just the, the issue of addiction. So uh, most yeah. most people, most everyone kind of knew that narcotics were, were very addictive. Right. They all read To Kill a Mockingbird. And we remember... Teddy remember, Roosevelt had a heroine's arm. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. so we, we, yeah, we, it's kind of known. But this was the issue is don't worry about addiction because this cotton system, this time release system is not going to allow people to become addicted to this. Mm. That was the that was the the the, the warning. The warning right. said you have what reduced the abuse potential. Well, you know, it makes you feel kind of warm and fuzzy. Um, so so those three conditions: the company that knows what what they were doing, this this drug, um, and the. Um, uh, the FDA, and then finally the whole pain. The pain. The pain was reconstructed to be a fifth vital sign, and you put those three together. You've got okay. You've got the the stage is set. So once the stage is set, how do you? What's what's amplifying this? And what's amplifying it is just the marketing dollars. It's other competitors moving in because you see how much money is in, involved in Purdue. Um, certainly, they 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 grew on the coattails of that. Um, the distributors that what they were really good at was lobbying oh my goodness i mean they, so purdue pharma had the marketing but the distributors knew how to lobby uh, they created something called the alliance and many of the larger um, pharmaceutical uh, pharmacy chains joined in but it was very similar to big tobacco well let's blame the people um, let's change the narrative about opioids we don't want to be seen as the bad guys and let's try to get in some legislation, and and let's not let them take this um, this this. Let's not ta- let things go to trial because the discovery will be people will be pretty shocked what they find in discoveries. In some documents, they they found you know this, this absolute disdain for um, Appalachian um, addiction. They were yeah. you know pill pillbillies yeah. and uh, eating them like Doritos and sugar smash. Just the absolute disdain for human life, in which yeah. they had a responsibility to protect American people. So, in the attempts to fix it. Uh, a lot of prescribing regulations were put into place. The CDC has released several guidelines over time, or two at least. Um, 
this has led to some potentially unforeseen consequences, just rapidly filling one of the Swiss cheese holes. Maybe it didn't, they didn't account for some other unintended consequences. Mm. When I study disasters, one of the things I've learned, and it's been stated, what you don't want to do after a disaster is create more and more rules. You need to, it's, it's a little bit counterintuitive. It's, you need to figure out what are those simple rules and reinforce them. So an academic who used to be a colonel in the Air, Army, Scott Snook, wrote an entire account of what happened um, when we shot down two of our own Black Hawk helicopters right. in 1996 over northern Iraq. And he talked about the issue of practical drift. And when you read that study and you read his book, it's, it's, it shows you that if the rules that had not, they hadn't drifted away from the rules and the rules had worked at a time when they needed to, they wouldn't have had the disaster. And then after this, there was a big call for um, you know, more regulation. And, and that's what we normally see as a knee-jerk reaction is, well, we didn't have enough rules. Well, I think the issue is that m- many times you've just drifted away. You allow rules to be broken. Um, you have, over time, um, not trained on them. Uh, people get complacent. Mm. The, the, the holes of the Swiss cheese have been growing because they've been breaking rules. There have been drift. So, yeah, it's, it's not never, I don't think it's ever like one person's fault. I think we like to, you know, say it's Richard Sackler's fault. Certainly there's blame. Right. But, but there, we don't learn when we, when we pin it on one person or we flood it with there weren't enough rules. We don't learn. And I'm, I'm just, I'm haunted. This one um, quote from American Cartel very much haunts me. It's right in the middle of the book. And it's a statement by Jim Geldof, supervisor of uh, Detroit Field Office of the DEA. His son asked him what was uh, the most disappointing thing that happened in your career. And he said, that's an easy one, that the American people will never know what these companies did to our country. They'll never know. So huh. I, I find that just haunting because it is, it is a business story. I mean, there's more to but but I look at it through the business lens. There is a, a story of breakdowns. Um, there's a story of unethical behaviors. Um, and, you know, where were the board of directors? Were they asleep at the, the switch? What was, uh, what was happening um, to allow this to happen? The, the pain is a fifth final sign, I, I think, probably played a really overwhelming portion of this, why the medical community to this day largely remains uh, very skeptical of that is because the other uh, vital signs, blood pressure, respiratory rate, uh, oxygen saturation, these are objective, Mm -hmm. measurable phenomena. Uh, A pain scale is subjective. Your 10 out of 10 is not my 10 out of 10. Yeah. So it, 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 uh, you start getting more and more conditions. There's that market expansion you mentioned. Well, they were um, also uh, the manufacturers, Purdue Pharma in particular, were funding a lot of these pain associations Absolutely. and creating some as well. So, so that, that's, that's, that's part of the issue. Um, that, and, and also on the flip side, you look at hospitals and doctors, many times they're rewarded on how well do they treat the pain. So yeah. you have these incentive structures. You had incentive structures for pharmacists. On, they got bonuses, bonuses for the number of pills that they 
um, filled. This so was right around the time that quality metrics became a measure of physician reimbursement. Yes. The, the late 90s, early 2000s, they, they, there's all these attempts, uh, uh, accountable care organizations, managed care organizations, they were trying to figure out how to stem ballooning hospital care costs. Mm -hmm. And so these quality metrics were an attempt at sort of, okay, well, did you check, did you uh, uh, talk about diet with your diabetes patient? And did you assess a blood pressure uh, on a patient there for a toothache because he had a history of a heart something or other? Mm -hmm. these, some, plenty of these quality measures are excellent, but once you have pain as a vital sign, absolutely, mm -hmm. I see how that can yeah. play a stimulative factor. There's a very famous Harvard Business Review article call, called Rewarding A while hoping for B. Huh. And it's so timely. And it, we, 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 I mean, I, I read it when I was an MBA student, and um, uh, we have our students read some version of this. But it's, you know, we create these incentives structures hoping that our pharmacists perhaps will become more efficient because we're incentivizing them for how many pills they fill as opposed to how many times they stop and say this looks suspicious I'm going to call the doctor mm -hmm. um, to make sure this is right instead what they do is they fill as many as they can with all these incentives with all the similarities to how tobacco handled things mm -hmm. Do you think perhaps we should have seen this coming? Uh, we, we operate in a for-profit healthcare system, and now you're talking about multiple layers, not just manufacturers, but in the distributors, the pharmacies, kickbacks to physicians, quality metrics to hospitals, bonuses and the like. I mean, pills are extremely cheap mm -hmm. to produce, but if you charge a lot for them, you can make an absurd amount mm -hmm. of return. Should we have seen this coming? Um. I think some people saw it as it was unfolding. There was a customer service rep inside one of the distributors who raised a red flag that this looks suspicious. Now, according to the 1970 Controlled Substance Act, any suspicious distribution should be flag halted until it made sense of. Um, the DEA tried to shut down these distributors, and they, they did. They had uh, immediate stop suspension orders for um, McKisson, and um, in 2005, and then the same behavior seen in 2015-17, right around there. Um, and again, it, it, they were getting signals. So, so I've told you about the Swiss cheese. I've told you about complexity theory. The final kind of framework I use is there is always a recovery window. So even if you didn't see it at the beginning, as this thing was unfolding, there were lots of weak signals that things weren't right. People were abusing these pills. Um, people, it was not lasting 12 hours for relief, and people were having to have higher and higher doses and were getting addicted. Not pseudo-addicted, it's a word that was created to make people feel good. Yeah. Um, but And we see that in any disaster. These words come out, like in, in the space shuttle, we see words like, um, in, in Colombia, the um, foam was always shredding off Colombia, and it was called an. Inf they knew it was a problem. It was an exception that became accepted, and it became. It was called in family. That made you feel pretty good, but but similarly, we had this this similar um, pseudo addiction take. You know, breakthrough pain breakthrough and, yeah breakthrough yeah. pain and all of this that were kind of suppress the weak signals. But in any disaster, we don't and we don't hear about a lot of these because. Um, high reliability organizations seek out the weak signals. 
they want to know, like, for instance, on a flight carrier deck, why is that screw on mm-hmm. our landing deck? They'll stop. The lowest person in the organization has the authority to stop all, all flights from taking off and landing until they know why that screw is there, because it could end up leading to disasters. So there's been a lot of research done about high reliability organizations, but it's not what these companies were doing. These companies were suppressing weak signals. Mm. If you amplify the weak signals and you ask, how could this rattle through and cause us tremendous troubles? Those are the organizations that they weren't doing this. And and that's... um, Part, part of the problem. There was a window in there from 98 to about 2002 that they could, that, that if these companies had sort of um, seen the weak signals and maybe played out a pre-mortem, if you will, of what's the worst thing that can happen mm. um, that may have, I don't, I may have curtailed the, the impact that it's had on our, our society today. This reminds me also of the Kaizen uh, mm-hmm. Model, which came from Japan, I think Toyota, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong, yeah. uh, but uh, the the idea that you review every process and just seek to make at least one improvement, mm-hmm. make it more cost effective, in better safety, things like that. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that's a, a type of model that might prevent further organizational disasters? Maybe. I mean, I'm a big fan of dimming. Uh, I used to work in manufacturing, uh, and I think one of the main things is that the lowest person in the organization can stop. They have that, the Andon core. They can stop the assembly line because yeah. something doesn't look right. I think it's giving and respecting people low in the organization that are seeing things that have a feel about things that are hearing complaints. If you're a customer service rep or you're, it's, it's, it's being highly attuned to the small signals and giving those lower in the organizations the responsibility and the um, discretion to act accordingly. How might we stimulate that type of culture to be more commonplace? I mean, certainly there's an inherent market factor. If you have a, uh, a, a more robust, high reliability mm-hmm. organization, it's going to perform better in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any other way we might look at stimulating that? Yeah, well, I think there's been some good research on this out of Harvard. Amy Edmondson's work about psychological safety. If people low in the organization know what's going on, and you take that as an assumption, if they know what's going on, do they feel safe to speak up? Mm. And if you don't have what we call psychological safety in teams or in organizations, units, reporting structures, you're not going to hear what's going on until it's too late. So fear of retaliation is what you're talking about. Humiliation, retaliation. Oh, okay. We see that and when we look at disasters. Uh, we see this uh, that, for instance, if you look at Everest and into thin air, the people, the clients on the mountain would not speak up when the leaders clearly were in distress because they had been told that you're to keep your mouth shut up there. You know, I've gotten as pathetic bloats as you up the mountain, so why don't you just, you know, you mm. just you, they knew their place. So I think probably one of the great theoretical contributions from um, management literature has been this idea of psychological safety. We see it throughout all these disasters. People, if they don't believe they can speak up, they're not going to. It's just like... Um, I didn't expect to talk about this here, but I used to have my students watch this PBS documentary called The Man Who Knew. It's a very moving account of John O'Neill. And John O'Neill was in the FBI, and he knew there was going to be another attack. 
And he he knew that that, that the trade centers were going to be attacked again. He just that was, and he ended up leaving the FBI. A long and sort of sordid story, um, but he died in 9/11 because he was head of security for the uh, the trade center. Um, but he knew, and uh-huh. it, it's very well documented. There are people that know whose voices, either because they um, are iconoclast or they are um, don't have power. Um, they're not listened to, so right. that 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 is something I think makes a big difference. So it's not just it's not just knowing. You have to know. You got to know that if you speak up, there will be uh, will not be humiliation or repercussions because it could be a false alarm, right. and that's one of the things you worry about. Is you have too many too much of this noise, but um, but again, I think that's that's something that can be incorporated in. And are thinking a lot of what we're talking about here is like management stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, that's what I am. I'm a management professor. So that's why I've gravitated to this is there's so many interesting, I wouldn't say interesting, there's so many lessons that we can learn by studying what happened to be more attuned going forward. There are lessons that we can take away. Um, and I think the main thing is to get this out in front of the next generation so that they see what happened and they can perhaps have sensitivity to it, not only in the way they manage, but it's the way they see unfolding of events that maybe they can do something about it. So usually I, the last question I ask my guests is what policies would you like to see put in place? And of course, obviously I know this, this is, this is probably not as a public policy is not so much what you do as you, as you look at the private sector, but it sounds like you kind of already answered my question, and I, I would love to to hear you uh, expand about it. But it sounds like uh, an increased adoption of the concept of psychological safety, uh, especially in business schools. Yeah, that and um, good leadership from the top, right. setting good more uh, good values for the company. Not, um, but I I think you know on a very uh, on a, a practical scale. Um, is the need for more beds for uninsured to get recovery. Mm. I'm just, I just, I think there are people that want recovery that aren't able to get it. If they're ready and able and wanting to get clean and move forward with their life, gosh, I mean, I think that's something that that would be fantastic. The other is not to forget this. Um, High reliability organizations, they revisit tragedies from time to time. How do we get to where we are now? We don't want to sweep this under the rug. We don't want to, we want people to learn from it so that it never happens again. That's the point. We don't want to blame one person. We we don't want to um, say, oh, that was a one-off. No, it, it can happen again. It's the same dynamics. We see them over. This is a scale of which I'd never seen before, but, um, but, but, but we could see it again. It won't be opioids. It'll be something different. So we all need to be aware of that. And, and also, I think you're right, going back inside of companies, the lowest in the organization speaking out when something doesn't feel right in terms that could cause a loss of life um, or you know, the company going bankrupt, that is critical. But it comes from the top. It's the leadership. It's, it's understanding that this is important. So... Yeah, I'll leave it at that. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Thank you so very much for joining me. It was a pleasure. Good. This is great. For more episodes on in-depth discussions on Tennessee policies related to substance use disorder by a range of local experts, 
please subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts and visit our website at smart.tennessee.edu. I'm Jeremy Corvellis. Thank you for listening and see you next month.